Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone. I'm LaToya Johnson, your host for the New Books Network, and I'm here with Dr. Frederick Ingram Jr. to discuss his upcoming book, Black Liberation Through Action and Resistance, Move. The book acknowledges and challenges anti-Blackness, patriarchy, white supremacy, and misogynoir ideologies designed to oppress the descendants of Africans enslaved in America. Its central mission is to provide additional context to an ongoing discussion regarding Black liberation and proper allyship. Dr. Ingram is an assistant professor of higher education at Fairleigh Dickinson University. His research focuses on understanding how African-Americans comprehend anti-Black racism in higher education and the criminal justice system. Hi, Dr. Ingram. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me about Black liberation. I am honored. Through action. Honored, honored, honored. And resistance. <laughs> it is a pleasure. Um, I want to I say, I want to start off with a quote, one of your favorite quotes. Y'all don't hate white supremacy enough for me. Yes. Yes. You know, yes. Little... yes. <laughs> and it shows. I love that line. Yes. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> Uh, I want to begin um, with another line, but this line is from your, from your book, Black Resistance, um, through Action and Resistance yes, Move. Yes. I should know it by heart, but you say, we have an opportunity as scholars and millennials to provide easily digestible material intended not for the white gaze, but for our own understanding. Was this your interaction, your intention when you first decided to write Black Liberation Through Action and Resistance? It was because I, one of the things that we we do in academia and really in the world is be policed by whiteness, right? And the perceptions of whiteness, even in our upbringing through respectability politics and the things that tell us what is acceptable norms, how we should operate, how we should speak, how we should stand, how we should dress, how we should talk, how we should eat, where we should live. And literally everything about our existence has been socially controlled through this particular lens. And so what I want us to do in order for us to understand how to liberate ourselves, we have to deconstruct our relationship with the white gaze, the permissions of whiteness and respectability politics. And so and thinking about this and, and who I was writing it for, I wanted to be in conversation with my peers, right? With the people that I share space with, with the people that we influence, so our elders and those who who follow us, and to be able to have like a real conversation free of um, this perspective that everything needs to be perfect and it has to be said in a way that is delicate and gentle for everybody else but us. We had to have real talk. And throughout the book, you there are instances where you give us a little bit of your personal life and a, a lot of your 
upbringing. And one of the, as I, as I was reading it, one of the, the questions I had is I was like, oh, I wonder when Dr. Ingram decided that, yes, this is the moment to write and publish this book. What, at what point in your journey was it like, okay, this is the time. This is, this, this is necessary right now. It's a really good question. So I had, there were, when I accepted my job, my first professorship in Texas, um, there were two things that I said I wanted to come from that experience because I just did not see myself ever living in Texas. Um, but there were two things I wanted to come from that. I wanted to have an opportunity to do a TED Talk and I wanted to have an opportunity to write this book. And both of those came out of my time in Texas. So Texas for me was rough, but it was also a time for personal reflection and to really get about the work, right? And to be really rooted in the work. And so in, the, in that moment where right, we had, we had, we were just coming off of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ward Aubrey and heading into January 6th, right? And, and the election and all of that. And, I was so tired of the performance, right? I was I was so tired of people acting like they were in community with us and and wanting to understand our perspectives and where we've been and where we're going and how they are complicit in it and have a role or responsibility in it only to fast forward a few months and then watch what they did once they got inside those polls all over again. And so it's those instances that I'm like, we have to have a conversation. We have to have a real conversation. And while you were in Texas, Dr. Ingram, where where were you and what were you doing? I was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area um, in Arlington. I was assistant professor uh, at the University of Texas at Arlington. I made history going there. I was the first ever jointly appointed professor of two things, um, in the Center for African-American Studies and in Criminology criminal justice. So that was a first of many firsts. Um, I was the only um, in my department situated between those two roles. And I did have a counterpart, a colleague, uh, Dr. Mia Kirby, shout out to Mia, um, who was who was jointly appointed in social work and the Center for African American Studies. And so we were each other's lifeline and support throughout that experience. And the reason why I asked that, because I, I know throughout the book, you mentioned what you were doing there. And I, I, I think that it was it's important to add clarity to this book just isn't coming out of thin air, that a lot of these are very personally lived experiences, absolutely, absolutely. which hinder in the, in the writing of this book. Mm -hmm. you, you write, understanding whiteness is key to understanding white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of a tweet uh, from Dr. Siri along a few months ago where she wrote black people are the best ethnographers of whiteness yes <laughs> can you please elaborate on that because please. because what one of the things that it's like what i think about like growing up right like we watched martin and living single and a living color and a cosby show and and white people watch like dawson's creek and friends and 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 it's seinfeld but we also watched Dawson's Creek and 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 Seinfeld and Friends, but they did not watch right the same shows that we watched. So we never had or were never granted the benefit of solely living in and being surrounded by blackness in every aspect. We 
based on our own need to survive and thrive had to be saturated in whiteness and white perspectives and white living. So we knew how to show up, right? We couldn't be in class and everyone's talking about Dawson and Pacey and all of these people and you not be able to engage in the conversation, but we could be over here talking about Morris Chestnut and Sanaa Lathan, and, and those are very black names that are mainstream A-list stars, but white people don't know them, right? And so part of understanding whiteness is understanding that like part of being black in America is also understanding how we interweave our lived experiences in and out of the system of whiteness and what that looks like to be able to move forward and to be educated and to be professional and to socialize. We we don't get the benefit of being obtuse to that existence. And it's very interesting that you mentioned that because um, in the in the past two weeks, there's been a lot of conversation about Jada Pinkett Smith. And I see a lot of white women online with their opinions. And I'm, I sit back and I wonder, like, have you seen an episode of the different, a different world? Have you watched Jason's lyric? Have you seen set it off? Like, do you know the impact that this woman has had on black women, on little black girls coming out of the nineties? And here you are with a lot of opinion. I think it what bobbles me the most about the attacks on Jada is for and because I'm a millennial, like I grew up, right? Jada was a teeny bopper when we were kids watching her on A Different World and then seeing her in Jason's Lyric and seeing her set it off and seeing her in Woo and all these other films that we saw her, that we saw her in. And so she was almost like a big sister cousin to, to many of us, right? And so Jada has always been who Jada was, but I remember when her and Will got together like the media circuit and the rumor mills began to start immediately because that's what they do to try to tear down um, famous black couples. We need to create distress and dysfunction in them. Hopefully it'll work and it'll, and it'll seep into their relationship and cause distractions and turmoil, but they were solid from the beginning, right? They were not letting people in. They only shared with us what they wanted us to know. And I appreciate that. But what did happen is the media from back when they had tabloids were a thing, they always had rumors circulating about Jada and Will and their marriage and their relationship and who wore the pants, whether he was queer or she was queer, they were queer together. It was all of these assumptions and Jada never addressed it. Will never addressed it. They went about their lives, made great films, made great TV. And that was that. And then Jada got red table talk. And I think Red Table Talk was amazing. And and I never had issues with Jada's opinions and perspectives, nor just as I don't have a, uh, issues with Black women speaking out about things that affect them every day. It's not my job to tell them how they should represent themselves. But people felt like she was too bold and she talked too much. And I was like, that's patriarchy. Like, that's patriarchy that you feel that she talks too much and that Will doesn't talk enough and it's massage that you're bothered that by this black woman being able to be vocal and advocating for herself and thing that things that she cares about and so when everybody's up in turmoil she making Will look like a simp but I was like no she's not Will is fine that man is capable of at any point if he decides that this is enough to get up pack his bags and roll out just as she is, they are in partnership 
you are not in partnership and you don't understand the transparency of relationships. And that is why you get upset. You have this skewed perspective of this idea that your grandmother was happy or that your great grandmother was happy with your with your sorry grandfather. Right. And because of that, you cannot fathom a world where black women operate opposite of the perception and the ways of being that men have decided that they should operate it. And that is why Jada bothers people. And she does not bother me at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the fact, I didn't mean for it to be solely on Jada, but I wanted to use her as an example because I've seen white women online, you know, having these, you know, these monologues about her. And I'm thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. And not just them. Don't know her. And how are people, oh, we're going to go into that in a second. But yeah, yeah. You know, and let's go into it right now because the book focuses heavily on misogynoir and what Black women have experienced in this country um, with white people, with, with Black men, with other Black women, and in the sphere of feminism as a whole. And I just wanted to ask even though I love it and you explain in the book why you're doing it, but I do want to, I want to know why it was important for you to add that perfume. Yeah. Because I get tired of people beating up on black women, right? I get tired, like, like rage filled, tired, right? When I watch black, when I watch black people, black women, black men, white people, other, other ethnicities and other, and other racialized groups talk about black women in ways that are just untrue. Right. And and tell the stories of black women. And to me, that means I see my grandmother in that. I see my great grandmother in that. I see my sisters. I see my nieces. I see my cousins, my god sister, my best friends. You know, I see all of them when I think about these experiences and the ways that people are trying to police and socially control their lived experiences. And I'm thankful for Dr. Moya Bailey for coining the term massage war. I'm thankful for. Isabella Baum, Free Soldier of the Truth, for say, ain't I a woman? I am thankful for those, those Black bold women who, without care of the opinion of other people, taught us how to respect them, how to care for them, how to nurture them, how to be in support of them, and how to get the hell out of their way, right? And I am so thankful for all of the Black women in my life who have nurtured me and supported me and guided me and stood side by side with me and just let me be, you know? And so I could never, ever repay that except to be honest. And uh, what what were you reading and what were you engaging with? Why you were specifically, I know chapter six, there's this very specifically Black woman centered. So what were you reading? Who were you speaking with? What were you engaging with as you were writing that? Audrey Lord, Bell Hooks, Bettina Love, right? Uh, so many of those black women whose whose work, Alice Walkers, right? Nicole Hannah Jones, shout out to Nicole Hannah Jones at the White Bailey, as I just mentioned. Um, shout out to Dr. Terry Watson for centering grace in her work as she talks about um, other mothering and, and black mothering in in education and reading those pieces um really and listening to the black women scholars that I know personally that I'm in relationship with personally and just like 
listening and watching and just paying attention and just got the glorious lads, glory lads of villains. And oh my God, there are so many women, so many black women whose, whose work inspires mine, whose work I regularly cite, whose work I'm in conversation with in my own work and in class with my students as I'm training them. And those were the, the, the most eminent pieces of my thoughts um, as I as I think about um, why this perspective is so important and why I need to teach brothers, particularly brothers who are my peers and again, the ones who we are relationship with above and below us um, and how we treat women. Like anybody who knows me personally knows I'm like, do not call women bees in front of me. Do not call them this, that, and the third. Like I will stand on that. And they can tell you like, he, now he does. He, he does not allow for us to say certain things if we get too out of the pocket, he gonna tap us on the shoulder. That's just who I am, right? I'm like, you know, when you when you get upset, you know, she still has a name, right? Argue about the thing, right? Don't go get into the weeds of being disrespectful and all these other things. And and I'm intentional about that in my own life. And so I try to to it's aspirational to show other folks how to be about that. I remember getting into like a heated discussion with my cousin about Jada and Will, and he. And I and I was kind of poking at him because I knew that I wanted him to get to the peace of the patriarchy, but I needed him to explode first before he, you know, got there. So he was making comments. And I was like, you have really strong feelings about a person who you've never met and will never meet. Right. You have really strong feelings about that. Tell me about that. And he was like, Will was our hero growing up. And I was like, yeah, Jada was one, too. Right. It wasn't it wasn't either or it was both. And right. And so the way that you feel so strongly about defending Will, I feel strongly about defending Will and Jada, right? And not choosing one based on a gender identity and that and that and that sort of thing. And it finally got to the point where he was like, F her. And I said, There it is. There it is. That's what I was waiting on. You don't like her because you don't believe that she as a woman has a right to operate in a way that she does to be her most honest self. And that I'm not here for. And that is the, the thing that I love about your book is that in reading the book, it brings up a lot of different conversations. And I, I, I do spend a lot of time on Twitter. And so I get to see a lot of what a lot of what people are saying, both sides. And I remember Meg the Stallion's situation where there was just so much vitriol coming at her. And I feel like this is a book that allows us to look at that, look at how we treat Black women, the things that we say specifically to Black women, and why why it has been okay for such a long time for Black women, for us to be demeaned and degraded for so long without... Even out, even us questioning why that is, and I do feel again that Jada Pinkett Smith is that conversation is coming up again, where this this vitriol towards Black women and no one's talking about it and where it's coming from, which you do point out so eloquently in Black Liberation: the reaction and resistance that is a white patriarchy and, and you know white supremacy and misogynoir. Um, I remember a, a few years ago, I had someone ask me specifically if I was participating in women's march and it was a blatant no 
And the reason why it was a blatant no is because there is a specific treatment around Black women. Massage and war is the, the, the reason. And you talk about white privilege and, and you explain it very well. And of course, I didn't explain to individuals. They didn't ask. Mm -hmm. They didn't say, <laughs> well, why, Latoya? They didn't ask. And I didn't, I didn't offer a reason. But it is white privilege. Can you talk about what white privilege is? Absolutely. Please, sir. As I say all the time, it is it is the thing that disallows you from having to teach your kids about existing. An exercise that I often use in my class when I was teaching undergrads would be like, raise your hand if you've ever had the talk about how to engage with police with your parents. And I'll be like, look around. Raise your hand if your parents have ever had to teach you that your skin was beautiful. Look around. Raise your hand if you've ever had to be concerned about excuse me, being pulled over by the police or accused of stealing when you walk into a luxury brand store or be ignored as you wait at a, a, a cash register or walk into a restaurant. And if the answer for all of those things is no, it's because you have white privilege. And so many of you... uh tied privilege to wealth and class and it's the privilege of your racialized category that allows you to be able to exist in this country free of all of these things that we all have to deal with no one is forcing white people to stand up to the black gays right and 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 appeal to blackness and and their ways of being and living and how they talk and how they dress and how they speak but everybody else is. And to not even know that everybody else is, is a privilege. To believe that everybody else exists in a space on, on their own is a privilege. The fact that you don't even know that, the fact that until people sit in my class and I have those conversations and ask those questions and ask for the raising of hands that they've never had that conversation before that moment is privilege and it has absolutely nothing to do with how much money is in your bank account how big your house is how fancy your car is or your degree it is solely about the racialized category affixed to you based on right the legislation that created whiteness and the assimilation of your great 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 grandparents and it is also the ability to feel safe emotionally safe and physically safe in social spaces. And that's where I was coming from with the going to the women's part to know I do not feel emotionally safe there. And it is a white privilege to feel safe in those in, in those spaces. Dr. Ingram, in, in chapter seven, where you write about ways of resisting, you mention the redirecting of language, which I hyper-focused on specifically because I am working through redirecting language myself and how I see and create a welcoming space for LGBTQ+. So I, I loved that there is a chapter on redirecting language. Can you explain what it means to redirect language and how it's crucial to resistance and liberation? Absolutely. Um, 
we could all talk about being in conversation with like our elders, right? Our aunties and uncles and all of that. And I have an auntie who likes the F word in terms of LGBTQ plus people. Loves the F word. I have tapped my auntie on the shoulder numerous times. Stop using that word. It's dehumanizing. And it is unfair. If you are upset with a person, think of other things as descriptors of these feelings that you have about what you are experiencing with this person without going there. And my auntie told me, I'm the adult. You don't tell me what to do. You don't control my voice. You don't get to tell me to stand up there. And I said, ah, so limit your interaction with me. Cool. Right? Because if I can't teach you how to not harm marginalized populations, <clears throat> if my request of you to not harm marginalized populations is too much of an ask, then so is your relationship with me. Right? And I and I teach that too about being in glass having taught in Texas. And when I was a when I was um fresh out of my doc program and I taught at Radford in Virginia and I had a student who mentioned colored people in class. And I thought that was so what year was this, right? But then I went to Texas and I had another student who said the same thing. I'm like, oh, they think this is a thing. And having to explain to them that it's people of color or name exactly who you're talking about. And that was so otherworldly for them because no one had ever said that to them. So much so the student in Texas asked for me because they felt that they would not be able to be themselves in my class because of that redirection of language. I said, no, you can absolutely be yourself. What we cannot do is do harmful things. We cannot use harmful language and then fight for our right to use harmful language. So I will absolutely push back on that every single time. But I think it gets into how we how we understand particular things and what is and isn't appropriate and also how that is tied to white supremacy. Again, when I say y'all don't hate white supremacy enough, I really mean that when I say people don't understand white supremacy from the most foundational perspective and how each of these things that we do that we believe to be um, our preferences and that sort of thing are tied to and deeply rooted in white supremacy and white supremacist ideologies. And if we could better understand that we would be aghast that we would ever think to describe people in ways that are harmful and dehumanizing. And I think it's important for us to teach people. Like I had a, I had an interaction with one of my, one of my students this last week about blacks with an S instead of black people or black persons. Right. And we had that very hard conversation about that being <clears throat> inappropriate. Right. And it's black people or black persons, but more, more particularly, are you talking about African-Americans? Are you talking about Africans straight from the continent, first generation here? Are you talking about Afro-Latinos? Are you talking about Caribbean folk? Who are you talking about? Because you need to name them because they each have names. And that is where that whole thing came from. It's like, we have to teach people how to talk to each other, about each other in conversation with each other because people have no idea. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand that black people aren't a monolith. Like yeah. just not one, just this one little group that yes. we're, they're, they're, we, yes. we are expansive. Yes. yes. So I, I have to say, Dr. Ingram, reading the book required me 
to analyze my own personal and professional experiences with whiteness, which was, I think, is your intent. Yes, yes, yes. With the button. And a lot of it is emotionally and psychologically heavy. And as I, I was reading through it, one of my questions was like, how did Dr. Ingram take care of himself while he was writing this book? Thank you for, thank you for asking that question. What? <laughs> I've often gotten that question and I will say I had to pull away certain moments because there are things that, as you mentioned, that I tell in this book that are deeply personal that I've never talked about publicly about my own experiences with colorism, um, my own experiences with with the patriarchy, my own experiences with, you know, all these other isms that take place within whiteness and white supremacy. And I had my people, right? Like I would I would call my sister. Um, I've called my mom, I've called friends, I called my, my, my brothers. I've, I had, and they're all thanked in early, in early on in the book, but I talked to a lot of people, um, working through this, particularly the parts that were really, really hard for me and the parts that got really dark, right? Like I had to be in conversation with people, um, during that. And I also went to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> went to therapy because right around the time I was writing this or finished writing this, we also had the shooting at Michigan State where I was a professor. And so a combination of all of those things tied together in some aspects and separately. And so therapy was absolutely a, also a part of that experience. Oh, wow. Thank you for divulging that. And thank you for speaking so openly about therapy, which is another thing that is kind of a a, a no-no. It's it's still, you know, we've gotten better in in the African-American, Black community, American community about going to therapy and talking about therapy and talking about, you know, taking good care of ourselves and looking back at, you know, our past experiences, generational experiences to, to, to help us presently. And so, it, but it's still, it's still a a thing that we don't really want to talk about. Ever present, yes. <laughs> what do you hope readers don't miss or gloss over while they're reading Black Liberation through action? Really good questions. I don't want them to gloss over the parts that make them uncomfortable because I think people have a tendency to be like, oh, don't like that. That was too sensitive, too close, too close to the sun, that one burned. And I feel like when that happens and when you have that feeling, it's time to go deeper, right? Because you need to understand why I'm having this visceral response, this visceral reaction to a calling in, a shoulder tap, right? Um, uh, an internal hug of sorts, right? Like why you're having that feeling. And I think for me, <clears throat> what allowed me to have the awakening that I did is like I allowed myself to have those moments of discomfort. I'm okay, I'm okay to, and I'm completely... Um, fine with my rage because I know that it's justified and as Dr. Pretty Cooper says, it's eloquent, right? And I think that people often try to make you feel guilty for having certain feelings and in truth telling, right? There are a lot of things that 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 I touch on from, from politics, libs and conservatives to the black church, no one was safe, right? And so I think you have to be okay with the discomfort, take time, put it down, walk away, get some water, get some wine, whatever you need to do and come back to it. Because 
that is the only way you get through the learning. I think people are so used to these hunky dory and these very like you're great like book anti racist books right or conversations that don't make you feel convicted right or complicit. People are so used to being able to like dump their their parts and participation in white supremacy and patriarchy on other people or blame it on other people. They are not accustomed to having to sit with their responsibilities and their roles and the parts that they play in all of that. And I'm asking everybody, right, to sit with your stuff, right, so you can work through your stuff. Was was there something that you wanted to add to the book that you you didn't for whatever reason it didn't tie into the theme it you know there was a time constraint and you didn't have time to get in and research and write about it black rebellion probably you know historic historically yes, like absolutely oh, right like yes. like i i talk about um i'm not anti-violence i'm anti don't ask around to find out <laughs> <laughs> I like I would have loved to have talked more about that, right? The Nat Turners and 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 why they felt they needed to do what they did. I think so often we like to believe that like in order for us to have freedom, we cannot do too much to upset the white folk, right? And I don't care about that. And if I had probably more time, I probably would have talked about rebellion and why rebellion is helpful and how why rebellion is purposeful and why look at how Haiti liberated themselves. Right. And and we look at all of these different aspects of black rebellion and people look at it as like, oh, my God, don't do that. But I'm like, how has being black and respectable helped us? Right. How has being black and, and rule following rule abiding by in terms of whiteness and white supremacy helped us. Maybe we do need to knock over some tables. You know what I mean? And I would have loved to have gone further into step-by-step place hand on bottom of table, flip table over, right? Like... (laughs) (laughs) Which is is necessary at times, you know? You know, know, Zora Neale Hurston has said, you know, you know, they'll... And I'm, of course, paraphrasing it, but if you, you know, you let them do it, they'll kill you and be like, well, she didn't say anything. So, and they'll say that she loved it. And they'll say that she loved it. Yeah. Let's say that you loved it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dr. Ingram, for, for writing for writing this book. Um, I can't even say enough good things about it. Yes, it, it's heavy, but it's heavy in a good way. We all need to kind of reevaluate how we live on this earth, how we interact with other people. It's mandatory for 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 the for the earth to subsist for us to go around. We have to be particular about how we interact with people and take care of people. I mean, we're seeing that now in the world currently. I think we have to be more intentional about how we, like you said, treat each other, but also how we treat ourselves, right? Because the way that we treat ourselves is what gives us permission to treat other people certain kinds of ways, right? You're not gentle with yourself, so you're not gentle with other people. You don't handle yourself with care, so you don't handle other people with care. But you demand that they handle you better than you handle them, right? And I think the ways of knowing 
the the intentionality of knowing, the intentionality of existing in community with other souls and spirits and minds will force you to be more conscious of the space that you take up and when you take up space, being conscious of how you use that space. Black Liberation Through Action and Resistance Move publishes the week of November 15th. Go make sure you go read. Thank you, Dr. Ingram, for being here with me. 